This is Jenna Mocha from Stem Cell Technologies. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jason Spence, Associate Professor at the University of Michigan, about his work developing, characterizing, and using human intestinal and lung organoids derived from pluripotent stem cells. Dr. Spence started his research career with his PhD work into tissue repair and regeneration mechanisms in the lab of Dr. Katia del Rio Sonis. He then moved on to a postdoctoral position with Dr. James Wells at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, where he developed the culture system for human intestinal organoids derived from pluripotent stem cells. After publishing this seminal work, he moved on to start his own lab at the University of Michigan, where he is continuing to develop novel in vitro model systems and using these culture systems to investigate questions in developmental biology. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. I was hoping you could start out by sharing a bit about how you decided to pursue scientific research originally, and also give us an idea of the path you've taken to your current research group today. Sure. Well, again, thanks for having me here. Um, so I started out as a uh, biology major at Canisius College in Buffalo, New York. And uh, really, that was just because I had a general broad interest in science and, and in biology. And while and this institution was predominantly an undergraduate um, biology program. And so I had an opportunity to do some research in one of the faculty labs. And I really just fell in love with research and decided at that point that I would uh, continue pursuing science as a career and, and moving on to graduate school. Uh, so for graduate school, I actually joined a, a relatively small PhD program at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And that was because I really uh, fell in love with the lab that was doing some regeneration biology work there. So this is a lab of my PhD advisor, Katia Del Rio Sonis, and um, her lab is interested in regeneration and they use non-traditional model systems like the newt and the axolotl. And my PhD project was using embryonic chick embryos to investigate retina regeneration. Uh, so, you know, some of these model systems have amazing, or some of these animals, I should say, have amazing capabilities uh, to regenerate. And so the broad question was, how can these tissues regenerate uh, mechanistically and why can these organisms regenerate tissues when we can? And so the idea was that if we could unlock some of these, uh, some of these answers that we may have insights into regeneration and, and repair for humans. And so that really kind of piqued a, a broad and I think deep interest in stem cell and regeneration biology, which then ultimately catapulted me into my postdoc where I had the opportunity to start working with embryonic stem cells in Jim Wells' lab at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And so at the time it was 2006, so that was uh, right around the time Shinya Yamanaka was having his big iPS cell technology breakthrough. And and shortly, you know, it wasn't too, too long after James Thompson had first published the ability to grow human embryonic stem cells. So it was pretty early days for the field. Uh, so, I, so I viewed that as a really exciting opportunity to move into an area that that seemed to allow me to continue my, to pursue my interests in stem cell and regenerative biology, but then, but then also move into something that might be a little bit more applied towards humans. So was it the opportunities that you saw with respect to these pluripotent stem cells that drew you to the Wells Labs in Cincinnati? Well, so at the time when I, when I joined Jim's lab, the Wells Lab in Cincinnati, he was really still mostly using model organisms uh, to study endoderm development and pancreas lineage specification and, and lineage and, and sorry, tissue patterning and, and really these kind of important fundamental 
questions about embryo development. I mean, those questions really were what drew me in, but then the opportunity to uh, apply some of these principles to a human system to try and create human tissues in a dish was, yeah, I think it was kind of the whole package. It, it satisfied a kind of ability to continue curiosity-driven research about embryonic development and also merge that with kind of my stem cell biology and regenerative biology background. Looking at your seminal paper on pluripotent stem cell-derived intestinal organoids that you published near the end of your PhD in Nature in February of 2011, it looks as though the development of the intestinal organoid culture system arose somewhat spontaneously out of the development of a robust directed differentiation protocol. Can you comment on how the development of this system progressed? Yeah, sure. So um, again, we had some, we had an idea, I mean, as many in the field do, uh, that, that this approach of using directed differentiation, which is attempting to mimic embryonic development in the tissue culture dish in a stepwise fashion using soluble growth factors, for example. We had an idea that this was a really good approach. So if you could kind of take the differentiation of the stem cells uh, one step at a time in, in an analogous manner to what might happen in the embryo, that we would be able to achieve lineage-specific differentiation. And so in the case of the intestine, that really meant first differentiating the ES cells into endoderm and then differentiating them, and then patterning that endoderm into more of a hindgut-like tissue, at which point the hindgut is the, is the embryonic tissue that will, mid and hindgut is the embryonic tissue that will give rise to the intestine. And so we were really working on the process of, of being able to define conditions to do that. And so it was a little bit serendipitous that we started noticing that these three-dimensional structures were also arising in the tissue culture dish. And so since that was something that wasn't completely expected at the time, and so what we think is happening, and we still really mechanistically don't understand why that's happening, why these three-dimensional structures that ultimately give rise to organoids are, are differentiating and, and developing in the tissue culture dish. But the idea is, or the hypothesis, I should say, is that we're providing a minimal set of growth factors to really instruct the cells down these different pathways. But of course, it's not just one or two growth factors that are doing these, uh, that are inducing these um, processes in an embryo. There's uh, many different pathways and transcriptional networks and cell-cell interactions that are critical for these complex processes. And so, so our idea or hypothesis is that by providing a minimal set of factors, we're really you know, kicking off a, a developmentally encoded program so that uh, more complex events can take place. And so that's, that's, again, an untested hypothesis at this point, but that's what we think might be happening in the tissue culture dish so that we can start telling the tissue that it needs to become hindgut and then it has a, a program that it knows or that, that, it that the tissue then can initiate in order to develop these more complex structures mimicking the morphogenetic events that would happen in the embryo, for example. Going a little bit deeper in that theme, throughout your work there seems to be a through line of using knowledge gleaned from developmental biological studies to inform model system development and then also to use these model systems to inform questions about developmental biology that are harder to address in other contexts. Can you comment on this balance? So how much of a base from in vivo development needs to be built into a system before the conclusions drawn using that system are considered developmentally informative? Yeah, I think this is a really, a really great question. I mean, I think we, you know, I think we appreciate that we, that we don't know a lot of how embryos form, uh, that we really don't understand how the complexity. So we know, I think we have a lot of insight that's been gained over decades of model organism research, but these are really 
you know, I think really just scratching the surface. And so there's a, uh, we, ha we have enough fundamental science from, from model organisms to allow us to come up with the hypothesis of how we would direct differentiation in a dish. But I think your, your question speaks to the point that at a certain point, uh, we are perhaps waving our hands a little bit about how, you know, we might continue a lineage specific differentiation. And, and so at that point, we are now starting to get into a little bit more discovery science using the model system. So the developmental biology helped us really understand how to make, how to differentiate endoderm in, in the tissue culture dish from human pluripotent stem cells. Um, similarly, uh, with intestinal specification, that was really all informed by endoderm uh, differentiation. Now, the other portion of my of my laboratory is interested in lung development, and so there we have we have found that again we can hit some of these milestones. But then at a certain point, we find that we are adding growth factors in different combinations because we know that they're important in the embryo for lung development. But really, how the growth factors interact to kind of control a specific cell fate decision, for example, really isn't known. So again, I think to your point, we know a lot of what, what we've done has been informed by developmental biology, but then that breaks down at a certain point and we really have to get back into trying to understand how, how the embryo does it so that we can model it in a dish. And, and now we've got these two really great models. So it really is kind of a, I guess, a virtuous circle type of, type of, uh, setup where you've got a in vivo situation informing what we're doing in the dish and then in the dish we're at a certain point able to do some more discovery science because we've gotten part of the way down the road but but then we have a nice tool to address unknowns so on the flip side of that as you were performing the initial characterization of the system were you at all surprised to find how similar the organoids seem to be with respect to the in vivo tissues in the dimensions that you were investigating? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So I think that there was an initial, you know, the initial thought was this is too good to be true. And, and so I think with appropriate scientific rigor, we were able to kind of really show that it, it <laughs> It was true, you know, that these tissues really were intestinal, for example, and that they really had this, this impressive cellular diversity of different cell types in the intestinal epithelium and, and our organoids, that we, the organoids that we generate in vitro also have uh, mesenchymal tissue. And so, you know, I think the initial thought was that this was a really uh, amazing result, but that we wanted to be cautious and do our, make, make sure that this, that the system was reproducible and robust and you know, that it was consistent and it was a bit of, uh, of amazement coupled with a heavy dose of scientific uh, kind of skepticism before we really wanted to make any heavy, any heavy claims. And, and that's in part also, it's been really nice to see other groups start to implement this, the systems that we developed, um, you know, the, the intestinal organoid model system, for example. Uh, I'm always excited when other groups publish work using similar you know, using a similar system or the same system, because it, it really means that that uh, the reproducibility is not an issue for other laboratories. And I think that's really important in this in the stem cell field and, and for, you know, for many of these tissue specific differentiation protocols that, that various labs are developing. So in your work since or in other people's work, what evidence have you seen that has changed the way that you view this model system and its physiological relevance since those early days? Initially, we reported that we were able to make intestinal tissue, and we had some idea from the cell types that we thought were present that this tissue was 
in the case of the intestine, that, that it was small intestine and not, for example, colon. Um, but I, I don't think that, so one of the drawbacks of our original study was that we didn't rigorously show that the, the intestinal tissue we were making was small intestine and not large intestine, uh, for example. And, and also we didn't really have a good handle on exactly how mature or immature the tissue was. And so uh, those were a couple of important points that we took on in, in subsequent follow-up studies. And so, you know, I think that for the field or, or as a as a community, um, I guess always interpret your findings in the context of what the limitations of the, at, the, at that time might be. So, you know, maybe we overcame some obstacles to generate these intestinal organoids, but then there were that presented a new set of obstacles. And I think you know, trying not to overhype a system so that it's not implemented improperly is, uh, is really important. Absolutely. Yeah, and so I guess just to, just to elaborate on that a little bit more, you know, now in our uh, subsequent studies, we've really been able to, with, with a fairly high degree of confidence, say that the intestinal organoids that we reported initially are immature, so they're more like fetal tissue. And then if you transplant them into a, a mouse, for example, that they'll mature and become more adult-like at that point. But really the tissue that we grow in, in the tissue culture dish is probably best suited to address questions of the developing gut. So to speak a little bit more specifically about that, um, you do describe some maturation of the organoids in vitro. Uh, with what you've learned now, how far do you think that that goes in the dish? You know, it's, it's really hard to say. So, and I think that's because, you know, in order to really carefully kind of make those kind of benchmarks and those kind of strong conclusions, you need, ac uh, you know, one needs access to the appropriate tissue to benchmark against. And in this case, it would be human fetal intestinal tissue. You know that that access to that tissue just is is quite difficult, and so uh, I think there aren't very very many groups that are are able to do that careful of a of an analysis. And some of the early analysis or the published analysis that we've done has been dependent on publicly available RNA sequencing data sets, for example, of the human fetal intestine and the human adult intestine. And so that was one of the ways that we were able to benchmark our organoids and say that they were fetal. But I think in able in order to really put a timeline on it, you know, whether it's first trimester intestine or second trimester intestine, we really need access to that whole, that whole set of developmental time points. And, and at, as current, at, at the current period of time, we don't have access to that tissue. So it's hard to say. So we do know a few things, though. We know, for example, that we're having cytodifferentiation in the organoid. So we see the differentiation of different cell types, you know, goblet, goblet cells, cell markers are expressed and enteroendocrine cell markers are expressed. And so if we Go back through the literature and look carefully. There are some uh, some older studies published that suggest when some of these cell types might be differentiating, and and then from that we can infer that perhaps the organoids are maybe somewhere in the second trimester of, of development. But again, I would say that with with a, a heavy dose of caution. Can you comment on some of the biggest technical challenges that you faced in developing the system? It's interesting. I think the the biggest. I think the biggest difficulty for us initially was generating these the, the starting material, so the, the spheroids that we embed into the three-dimensional matrix that then grow up to give rise to the organoid. And so we noticed in, in the beginning of a uh, period of time where we were really working on this that some of our cultures would spontaneously give rise to these three-dimensional spheres that we could use for our experiments, and some of them wouldn't. And so we spent a significant amount of time, I think, determining that the the density of the starting culture conditions is 
really critical for the efficient differentiation all the way from start to finish. And so getting the spheroid structures, again, is d dependent on the early starting densities of the cells. And so there's a lot of technical aspects from that, from that respect. Um, what we found that once we were able to, you know, get a handle on how we could efficiently control the starting densities of our culture in order to control the efficiency of the differentiation downstream from that, that the spheroids would develop much more robustly um, and with more reproducibility. And that once we were able to take those spheroids and embed them into the, into the three-dimensional matrix, and, and in our case, we mostly use matrigel, um, that at that point, uh, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of technical challenges. And I should highlight that it was really um, the way that we grow the intestinal organoids after we put them in, in matrigel is um, by including growth factors like R-spondin, EGF and Noggin that were defined by uh, Toshi Sato and Hans Cleavers uh, a couple of years before we published our, our manuscript. So our work was really dependent on their kind of their huge hurdle in the field of, of being able to grow intestinal stem cells and intestinal crypts into three-dimensional structures um, that, that really facilitated our work. So I think probably a lot of the technical limitations that we would have had were solved by that landmark paper from that group. I'd like to switch gears a bit to some of the work that you've done after leaving the Wells Lab uh, to establish your own research group at the University of Michigan in 2011. You recently published an eLife paper describing a pluripotent stem cell-derived lung organoid model system. What prompted the decision to add lung development and modeling to your research concentration? That's a really good question. So, I mean, I think when I started in... Uh, you know, started my postdoc and started this, you know, getting into this field of, of human pluripotent stem cell biology and, and, and differentiation, that we were more broadly interested in endoderm development and, and endoderm lineage differentiation. It just so happened that the intestinal, the work revolving around intestinal organoids took off first. So uh, in addition to the hypotheses that we had about how we might direct differentiation into intestinal lineages. We also had a set of hypotheses about how we would, for example, make uh, differentiate, you know, pancreatics, endocrine progenitors or you know, lung epithelial tissue. And so we had a, a kind of series of hypotheses that we were working on in parallel. And, and I think really you just end up at some point having, a, having to make a decision about which project you're going to move, move forward on. And so there was always this idea in, in, in the back of my mind that, that we would revisit uh, some of these other questions that I had started working on as well. And so, so that was, that's, that's the real reason that we, that we went back to the lung is that we had, I had been doing some early experiments and had some early preliminary results that I thought were, were quite exciting and just didn't have the, the time to push two projects forward at the same time. Besides the obvious, how does the lung organoid model differ from that of the intestine? Let me start with the similarities. So, you know, we did some of the very the the same characterizations of the of the lung organoids to show that there were, uh, like the intestinal organoids, there was a diverse array of of lung epithelial cell types that were present in the lung organoids. We were also able to show that the lung organoids globally, based on RNA sequencing, uh, globally resembled human fetal lung tissue and not adult lung tissue. And so there were, there were some pretty big similarities from that respect in that you had a diversity of cell types, but the, the tissue was typically still immature. 
So I think one of the, you know, one of the major differences is that it, the lung organoid model doesn't recapitulate all of the different structures of the lung. And so, we'll, so the lung uh, is broadly subdivided into the upper conducting airways, so the bronchi, trachea, bronchi, and bronchioles that deliver oxygen, and then the alveoli, which are the, you know, where the gas exchange takes place in the lung. And so what we find is that while we have some cell types of the alveoli in our lung, the lung organoids that we described, that there were really no true alveolar structures there. On the other hand, the conducting airways, so the airways that are situated like a series of you know, tubes, um, that we had some some really nice tissue that that um, resembled those tube-like structures. I mean, the, the the tissue was in the shape of a cyst, but nonetheless, the the organization of the epithelium was similar to the tubes in the in the human lung. So I, I guess that's one of the major differences is that we were only able to see some of the kind of structural similarities to the human lung, and others were completely absent from our system. What areas of research are you focusing on in your group right now? So a couple of uh, uh, we've got a couple of, of I think major directions. I think because we've uncovered this idea that these tissues and, and that these tissues that we're generating in vitro, these organoids that we're generating in vitro are immature until we transplant them into mice. I think one of the outstanding questions for the whole field, not just for organoid scientists, but also for you know people generating specific cell types, types like liver hepatocytes, for example. I think that one of the hurdles is understanding how to continue to mature tissues in vitro. So I think that's a kind of broad interest and, and we've been able to identify some major differences in the intestinal tissue since we have the ability to transplant the organoids after we grow them in vitro and then really look and see, see the differences between the two tissues. We have some, so we have some ongoing projects really trying to understand this, what, what are the major drivers of these uh, differences in maturation in the tissue culture dish versus when you transplant the organoids into a mouse. Um, we're also broadly interested in using the, the in vitro models um, without transplanting them to understand tissue development and how an immature tissue is to understand, I guess, the, the biology of the immature tissue in uh, a given context. And so I guess a, an example, a hard example of that would be helpful. Um, so we know again, that the intestinal organoids have an immature intestinal epithelium similar to a, a fetal epithelium. And so one of the one of the questions that we're interested in, in using that as a as a model to understand is how exposure of an immature tissue to microbes would influence tissue development. And so you could you could contextualize that by saying babies that are born prematurely are born with a underdeveloped intestinal epithelial lining and they have to eat food and their gut gets colonized prematurely and there are diseases that affect infants that are that are born prematurely uh, so for example necrotizing enterocolitis which is an inflammatory disease that's the result of kind of this premature colonization and food and uh, and we really don't understand how that disease takes place and so I think being able to say we've got a model of an immature tissue and now we can understand try to ask how food products or how microbes might influence the the health and well-being of that epithelium or how that might cause damage to that tissue um, is is kind of one of the contexts that we're thinking about implementing these models currently. You mentioned both liver and pancreas and I know that 
since the beginning of your postdoc, you've done some work on beta cell development and that kind of thing. Is this an area that you plan to continue working on as well? So we're not actively pursuing, uh, I, I guess the shortest answer is that we're not actively pursuing projects in beta cell development or hepatocyte differentiation. So uh, with that being said, um, we do work with, with other collaborators on campus here that are interested in those tissues um, and that are using human ES cells to model you know, beta cell development. Uh, but, but we don't have any active projects in my lab uh, pursuing those, those avenues. Obviously, your work on developing organoid model systems has provided enormous value to the scientific community. In your opinion, what will be the biggest impact of this work? That's a tough one. Um, I mean, I, I personally, I just see so many different uses for these model systems. Um, I, I guess it's a it's a really hard it's a really hard question to to answer because thinking about using these kind of organoid models that we make or things like regenerative medicine and tissue replacement is, is, in my opinion, something that's, if achievable at all, is something that's still very, very far in the future. And so I try to tend to think about how these tools might be used in the kind of next 10 years, you know, to really further our understanding of human development and human disease. And so, so you know, I think that they may be great platforms for things like preclinical drug screening, but, but really, I think it's the sky's the limit. And, and I, in terms of the, the use of these different model systems, again, I think they just need to be implemented in the, in the correct context. So I, I kind of sidestepped your, your question there because I guess I don't have, I don't have a, a clear answer of what the, greatest, you know, what the greatest use or implementation of these models will be. But I, th I think that there's a lot of potential there that's still untapped. Thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with me today, and I sincerely look forward to following your research in the future. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been a lot of fun. For more information on how scientists are using organoids to further their research, visit www.stemcell.com slash organoids podcast for featured applications, researcher profiles, and more.